All right, Matt. Um, first one of these intros, we've probably done half cut, but we'll give it a bash. Yeah, it'll hopefully be all right. Yeah. Fucking speak. <laughs> um, this is the intro for episode eight, which is on kind of industry, how people have worked and lived in the kind of uh, modern age, sort of. Um, but yeah, from early industry to, to now. Um, so this is an interesting episode, not just because a lot of it is about my uh, gastrointestinal <laughs> distress, um, but <laughs> also um, because we talk about things like yeah, how people lived off the land in this area and, and how it came to be as it is now. So um, we uh, had a few stories, including one about a pal Div, who's now a regular contributor, yeah, it's fair um, to say. Featuring quite a lot. Any cut in the profits for this podcast, which is approximately zero pounds sterling, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put to him as well. Um, so um, we talk about yeah a few story, toilet related stories for some reason in this episode, and um, one of them regards uh, regarding uh, a public toilet in Rome. Uh, I was trying to remember the, the feature in Rome we were talking about. It's next to the fam- famous monument, which is the Aventine Keyhole. And that's what it is. I've never known what the name for that was. I've yeah. just it's that keyhole in Rome. Yeah. So. Famous keyhole. We've got a nice view. It's the Aventine Keyhole. So where were we in this podcast, Matt? We were up near Inveruglis on, um, was it Ben Vorlu? Uh, yeah, somewhere. Yeah, on the slope. Kind of, of it, on, yeah, kind, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of on it. Um, so yeah, go to Inveruglis and then come down maybe about half a mile. And then that takes you onto a path which goes under a railway bridge. That's, um, so we were in the hunt for a, for a reservoir because this episode we talk about incredible reservoirs which have impacted on people's lives. In, in the landscape, we were looking for um, the Loch Sloy Reservoir above Inveruglis, which has got a great viewpoint as well on the west of the loch. Um, we <laughs> didn't find it as, as well, expected, yeah, and uh, we got lost. Uh, but anyway, um, we did manage to see Loch Arklet Reservoir across the loch on the east side from our view, which is good. Um, but that's where we were when we were recording this. So, other notes here, other apologies and corrections I've got here. Uh, around the 22 minute mark, uh, Gianluca mentions a house on the back road to pass Ballock Park near Baturic Castle. It's got a mill at the front. It's actually an Airbnb, map. Was that the one with the tennis court? Yeah, it's got a tennis court in the back garden as well. It looks onto the lock. It's unbelievable. So, if you want to go on Airbnb in Ballock, you can find that actually. Another note here we were questioning whether Carmen Muir, Carman Muir Reservoir, was actually the same as the fishery it is. From yeah, my Google search, I think it is the, the same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was talking about quarries during this, not knowing what they were in terms of a, a, a geographical feature, not the historic cafe. Balak. RIP. Yeah, a quarry is a dugout piece of a mountain from a glacier, which a lock informs in. Uh, a small lock can form in. So, uh, like some of the reservoirs were, were actually lockins and quarries. So there you go. There, uh, I've got here. There's a pause in recording around 32 minutes. I, I might have taken that. Out. I can't remember. Okay, I don't it wasn't it wasn't obvious when I did it, so I don't think it should be a problem. There's still a, it's a smooth listening experience, guys, unlike this recording, which we're um, plastered trying to do so very professionally. We do give a shout-out to Camden Off-Menu Beer in this podcast. Cracking. Great, but at the same time, we're doing a, a, a mini-campaign here. Please sponsor us. <laughs> we love some free crates. Um, you know, it's the least you can do. We're, we're putting it out to our tens and tens of listeners, so it's the least you can do. 
Um, Matt, you've got one correction here. Yeah, so unfortunately, at one point, I tried to say current. Mm -hmm. I did not say current. Take the first two letters and the last two letters that... I'm too drunk to figure out what you're trying to say. I said the C word. That was it. But it's okay. Ali McCoy said it on Sky Sports years ago and nobody hates them for it, so... It just means someone... It doesn't it really, so it's a replacement but, for someone. Yeah, I did, I said current, but it doesn't sound like current. Well, you just said it there, so... <laughs> um, so there's an apology for that. Another couple here, Matt. Yeah, so uh, the Swiss silk factory I talk about in that was actually Drumkin, what is now Drumkin and Gate, which is always my state. So that's in Baloch, if you're driving down... Is that Baloch Road? You know the one yeah. that goes, yeah, the yeah. Balak Strip. Yeah, so if you're driving down Balak Road, if you come down from the roundabout in McDonald's, you take a, a on the left hand side, that's where that is. So, got another um, set of directions wrong. Yeah, uh, standard. And um, at, the, yeah, at the end of this podcast, we also give a shout out to Loch Lomond Brewery. So, get, this is a genuine, <laughs> but, I mean, you should sponsor us, surely. Um, it, it, I mean, unless you think it's damaging to your brand, which. Don't think about that too much, okay? Just just respond to us, I would say. Because um, your beers are great and um, we'd like free some, free some beers. Some cans. Uh, some cans, please. Um, so, yeah, and I've also noticed that the, one of the purpose of the central was to give you an, an idea of what we're talking about. <laughs> I forgot to do that, so uh, here we go. Um, in this episode, we talk about uh, the themes of uh, topics of forestry within industry. So... We do um, talk about some interests and things like that, how people lived off the land in terms of forestry from a very early point and some magical um, elements of forestry that will heal your uh, unbalanced chakras. Um, so listen out for that. Uh, how we talked about quarrying. Um, if you want to forage for precious stones, uh, you figure, listen to this podcast, you'll find out how. And then we also talk about, of course, water storage and supply uh, and the hunt for uh, reservoirs and how Ben Lomond almost became a, a reservoir site. Um, and then we talk about the very interesting history of illicit distilling. Yes, which we? we also slightly covered in yeah. episode five about the islands as well, so that ties nicely in. Yeah, there we go. And, um, and then we talk about how that all fits within the context of a shift in culture and living. So from... <laughs> Whose fault was that? <laughs> was the Brits um, so we talk about how people you know moved off of this kind of sustainable living from the land to um, yeah increased urbanisation in other parts and, and depopulation of many of the towns in the area so that's an interesting part I enjoyed talking about and then we on talk about the very famous sort of bleach dye and, and print works and yep. textile works in the area Matt um, which, which, which basically led to the, essentially the towns developing in the yeah area. so I, you'll find out that you think the, the Vale became a popular place because of these works. And then we talk about some of the really kind of elements of industrial pride in the region around shipbuilding and even motor works in the area, um, which you can still see the remnants of uh, in buildings in the area here. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, then, we then kind of finish the podcast by talking about what is industry like today? Um, very different from it was in the last uh, 200 uh, to, to, to 500 years. So um, yeah, a very wide-spanning episode and there's some good stories in there, including about 
um, demons being banished in Hindus and saunas in Glasgow. So uh, please That's give it a listen. So seedy. No, it's, it's all. It's not, but it sounds seedy as hell. It's all good fun. So um, hope you enjoy it and um, uh, some nice chat and tunes. Have a good one, guys. Bon asholta. Okay, Matt. Today's been a day already. Aye. Isn't it? You've soaked your feet after two minutes. Yeah. Stepped in. I basically went knees up in marsh. One foot. First. And then when you went and planted your I other went, foot. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and then and another one immediately was, was done. Um, we're currently walking down another walk of shame, basically. Well, a mixed success this time. Uh, yeah. We didn't get snowed off, we just decided it's too much, we've got things to do today. Ah, it's just, a, a, and, and I've been experiencing extreme gastrointestinal distress as well, so that's also been an issue. But um, not much more information on that. Well, I could tell a few stories, but anyway. <laughs> do people want to hear that? Well, I don't know. I mean, this is supposed to be, that, well, we can do an intro before this, can't we? So we can always riff, but um, yeah, basically, we, we kind of, we took the wrong route, didn't we, really, at the end of the day? Or? Yeah, aye, it's happened again. We were trying to find Loxloy Reservoir, because it relates to today's episode, but what we call it, back in my day, industrial, yeah, so industrial back history. Back in open brackets, industrial history, yep. closed brackets. Good, good title. And, um, yep, so we're talking a lot about uh, hydroelectricity, water storage and supply, because there's a lot of interesting schemes around here, uh, dams and stuff like that, really cool things that apparently, again, you can visit. Uh, having said that, we tried to go up to Loxaloy Reservoir and um, couldn't quite get there because we got lost. And then uh, also, obviously, some physical s- symptoms were occurring, which meant that I couldn't scale a mountain ridge uh, off the cuff. And um, But we did get a great view, which you'll see in our uh, wonderful selfie, of Loch Arklet Reservoir, which yeah. is across the Loch, Loch Lomond. From Loxley. So, and, and we'll chat a bit more of that later, but what else can we expect today, Matt? So, we're going to cover a wee bit of forestry. After forestry, we'll be moving on to rocks and quarrying, back to the rocks again. We've managed to avoid them for a few episodes, but. Yeah, here we go. Sorry. Head first into the rocks. <laughs> the that's, that's how I feel. <laughs> that's what the listener will be doing. Yeah, and so those are the kind of, I guess we wanted to kind of start with what were the earliest, how did man manipulate the environment around Loch Lomond? So we're talking about those things, and then we kind of talk through the Industrial Revolution into some, you know, a lot of the uh, kind of modern industries that kind of shaped really society around Loch Lomond uh, in a big way, and we'll get uh, more onto that later. And then I think we'll talk about what people, where people work today. And yeah, I did say I'd tell a few stories that kind of popped into my head when the, on the ascent map. One was to do with gastrointestinal distress. Um, I don't really know if this is good, enjoy content, but. Um, it did remind me of um, we were we were talking about first of all about our pal again. We, our pal, no, should we say aye, it's our pal. Diff, we can cut out. <laughs> uh, but we, um, about how um, we went to a lovely holiday to Rome. Uh, a few of us uh, during the, the in between lockdowns in 2020, and um, our friend. Well, we we queued up together on one of the days. Um, to see the the famous keyhole, um, I forget I forget the name of it. It's near it's near the Church of San Anselmo though. Mm-hmm. But it's like a famous. If you've seen the film The Great Beauty, which is amazing on Netflix, I think it's on as well. Um, there's a great scene where they go around these amazing monuments in Rome at night, and they kind of have free reign to walk about. But anyway, one of the things is you see the keyhole, 
um, there and you get a great view, a kind of panoramic view. Yeah, it like looks the, out onto the Vatican yeah. and kind of across the skyline of Rome. Anyway, so we queued for ages to, to see to go look through this keyhole and then near the front of the queue, our pal Div goes, eh, sorry guys, I really need to release my bills so I'm going to have to just make a quick escape. So he skippers off to the public toilets around there which uh, I think he paid a few quid for and we're reliably informed we're the, one of the worst bogs in the planet yeah, and he said it was the hottest place on earth that day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was already a hot day so um, that reminded me that reminded me of that um, and also on that same day I actually had my own issues um, because my friend uh, Goffo and I we were sitting outside uh, a lovely cafe in the Jewish quarter and after an espresso or two um, and a night of heavy drinking prior to that I think we were trying to wash ourselves in the uh, the Trevi Fountain <laughs> three in the morning that night uh, the night before but um, yeah basically um, I'd went to use the facilities in this little cafe and uh, it was quite um, anyway it was it was not a nice sort of episode and I've opened the door and directly outside are the three owners of the cafe sitting at a wee table like a metre away from the door uh, they just gave me some of the coldest stairs I've ever had in my entire life so yeah, I, walk, I walked outside <laughs> physically evacuated <laughs> I, I walked I walked outside and I said, Goffo, mate, we need to get out here as fast as possible. So anyway, those are my stories out the way for gastrointestinal um, things. Has that made you feel any better? Yeah, actually, it's kind of cathartic. It's made me feel less nervous about the journey down to the public facilities right now. But um, anyway, so, yeah, walking back down from... Uh, basically, to get to Loxloy Reservoir, you need to... Um, Walk along the 82, yeah. back down it, and then so you park at Inverugglas, yeah. right, which is in the, which is kind of north west of uh, the loch. Yeah, so it's a few miles after Tarbot. I don't know yeah. how yeah. how many, but uh, yeah, if you keep driving on the 82, you'll get there. And then you can you do this walk up from there. You can go up. A lot of people walk up to Ben Vorlick from there, and apparently you get a good view of the Loch Sloy Dam. And I think that's where we we went off that path at some point, basically. But yeah, you can also go up. Um, there's another couple of bends around there, including Ben Vane, which. We'll cover more later in the hydroelectric chat. But yeah, great place to do a walk. It's an absolutely glorious day in February. Yeah, it did go from being absolutely freezing cold to yeah. I'm going to explode yeah. uh, within 10 yeah. minutes. Um, so it's been a, a nice day in that front. Go on to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, first, we uh, want to talk about uh, forestry, Matt, because maybe this was one of the earliest ways that man manipulated the environment. Yes. Uh, I've got some kind of context here. So um, we did cover the time when Romans came to the area in our um, episode two, who got here first. And um, John Mitchell, who we, who we, whose book we quote from a lot, paraphrase from a lot, um, he did say that when the Romans arrived at the start of uh, this millennium in Lowland, Lowland Scotland, um, he said it's likely that the region had kind of lost the majority of its um, tree cover um, due to kind of early agricultural settlements of the past three, of the previous 3,000 years. So, you know, those um, early settlers, um, uh, Neolithic and Iron Age, had already kind of, um, you know, made a serious dent yeah. in the tree cover. But the Highlands, it was going to be a bit slower to get rid of that tree cover, but after the Romans came, you know, the focus would have turned um, from craftsmen at that time to the Highland Zone, um, and Loch Lomond would have been included in that. 
and especially I think focus would have been on it because of its kind of waterways. Yeah, so there's coming down from Loch Lomond flows out into the only outlets, the River Leaven, which we'll go on to a wee bit yeah. later on in the episode. And then as probably said before, it flows out into the Clyde, so yeah. there wouldn't have been any bridges or dams then either, so they'd have been able able to fairly easily sail up and down. Yeah. Really useful for that for that reason as well. I mean I think we touched on this as well in our last episode in searching for fauna and flora. Um, but Loch Lomond's sort of influence on, on timber use uh, continued kind of far past this early period. Um, perhaps peaking around the time of King James IV of Scotland, mm-hmm. who um, tried to form the country into a, a major maritime power in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. And uh, yeah, so what you would have seen there is, is roughly hewn oak from Inchkailach, um, which is just off Balmaha, yes. um, and Salake and Luss. Salaki, which is near Balmaha and Luss, which is on the other side of the loch, that they've been transported to Dumbarton, where the shipbuilding was taking place mostly. Yeah, so Dumbarton on the River Clyde, yeah. um, just for a bit of context there. Yeah. And we'll and we'll uh, come more into the influence of Dumbarton later on in the shipbuilding industry. So, as a byproduct of forestry, um, we can talk about charcoal as well, because um, charcoal from the area became extremely important in iron forging. Uh, which happened quite you know, locally. Yes. Uh, before the Industrial Revolution, before the invention of the blast, kind of industrial blast furnace, a lot of that happened locally, I think. And we're reading about kind of uh, kilns um, on the forest floor and stuff like that. So it's a very different environment. And we can also talk a little bit about um, mining at this point and the kind of influence of the coal there. Um, but yeah, the discor- discovery and opening of a, a productive lead vein near Tindrum in 1741. Uh, that mined ore was carried by pack horses through Glenfalloch to the furnace at, um, how do you pronounce that, Matt? Binglis. Binglis. We'll, uh, we'll double check that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's anything wrong there, we'll pop it in. Yeah, and the same boats bringing the coal uh, to the head of the lock were used to carry um, the ingots of lead down to the Clyde. Um, so I think you've wrote this about this here, Matt, uh, below it, um, for the workings. Is that me? Yeah, I think that is you. All right. The mine workings were confiscated by the government after the Jacobite uprising. Again, they're at it oh. all the time, all the time. Well, we'll come on to that again more <laughs> later. But <laughs> so, the the mines eventually fell into the hands of a company of mining adventurers who sent the lead ore to their smelting works elsewhere. So yeah. they were transporting it out of the yeah. out of the area. And then, kind of finally on um, on this forestry, but um, we've got the use of tan bark. Yeah, so, so I think we covered that a wee bit in the yeah. last episode, just saying that there was the the works at Balmaha. Yeah, I remember mentioning that, because see if you do the walk at Rowardenon, in the shadow of Ben Lomond, you will see some informational signs talking about um, early industry and um, from the kind of mid-17th century. Um, like Rowardenon would have been quite busy, like that area in Balmaha. People um, harvesting the tan bark, which was really important in tanning leather. So like conditioning leather and making it more resilient. The products were manufactured in the west of Scotland from the tan bark that was harvested around Loch Lomond, for example. Um, and it was a big deal um, with exports sent as far as North America. So I think this is just kind of a great example of how different life was back then, like in these rural areas. Yeah, I guess everything was sent, like in a sense, well, not, actually not centralised, more yeah. spaced out and everything kind of worked uh-huh. within the same area. Exactly, so. yeah harnessing the kind of really manipulating the local environment which is you know something we are so out of touch with the environment these days even in our work you know it's all as you said about centralization it's all we're all working in 
you know, similar places or, you know, an industry and manufacturing is happening at a larger scale and, and not in rural areas anyway, you yeah, know? Yeah, so, yeah, you're kind of yeah. moving it. And, and we'll, we'll talk about the shift from rural to urban economies as well later and how it kind of changed the population in those sort of remote areas of Loch Lomond as well a lot. Yeah, so it says here, developed from a domestic craft, Dumbarton actually ended up housing a number of family-run tanning yards, but gradually the industry did become centralised and uh, kind of in and around Glasgow. Um, which in turn supplied the treated hides to the manufacturers of leather goods. And I've put here other interesting uses of wood in the area. Uh, juniper trees, the kind of wood which was used uh, as kindling in the smoking of fish and in illicit whiskey distilling, which we'll go into in a second as well. And uh, apparently the burning of the wood is also said to produce medical effects, including um, uh, the smoke being able to ward off infectious diseases. Do you want to give that a try? Yeah, might as well. I mean, I've had a quite rough cold the last week or so, so... I might as well give that a try. That's the perils of NHS waiting lists, isn't it? We're turning to burning juniper trees now. But yeah, later on the woodlands around here would become important as international embargoes meant that the First World War um, especially uh, created a lot more afforestation again. So, uh, on the rocks, I think um, in, in that book from John Mitchell there's some good early context around uh, the use of rocks. Um, obviously, any kind of loose stone around the area would have been gathered by early settlers to, you know, to make walls and yeah. homes and stuff like that. And, you know, eventually quarrying uh, sandstone first became a, a, a big deal after the advent of stone-cutting tools. Yes, yeah, well, even, like, in Alexandria, there's a lot of red sandstone buildings, and I think there's a lot of red sandstone around. Yeah. So I'm going to guess that that's got some correlation. Early, early turf and thatch roofs were replaced by more readily available slate from some of these new quarries. Um, and a great example of that, that you can go visit and look at in the lovely village of Luss, um, where we're not, well, uh, sorry, we drove past on yeah, the way here. So I think that was referred to as the Slate Belt. Oh, right, yeah. So, I don't know if it was just on the west side or it yeah. travelled over to the east as well. But if you go up to the ferry pools in Luss and you look down into the pools, you can see the slates. Cool. I don't know if you noticed that. Remember when we walked down from Bendu the long way and you walked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, the there's back, a wee, yeah. the kind of burning, there's a lot of slate yeah. in there as well. Yeah, that's a really nice walk up near Bendu and above Luss. I found online this great article, it's actually on helmsboroughheritage.co.uk if anyone's interested. But um, the Heritage Trust had a visit from a guy called uh, Ian Keekern, I think his name's pronounced, from uh, Alda uh, Crary, uh, just south of Luss. I think it's just maybe the one that we kind of. Right, so there's Aldeclay, which is a wee bit ah, down. I don't yeah. know where Aldeclay is. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, there's some lovely wee houses around Lust as well, so it might be included in that. But the slates were taken by Scow, school, which is kind of barge uh, from Lust to Ballock, and then used as well on buildings in the Vale of Leven, Greenock, Stirling, and Edinburgh, in Glasgow as well. But yeah, if you visit Lust, you'll notice that, um, and there's some plaques devoted to this as well. But you'll you'll see the roofs themselves are are, are all slate and they're really really nice. So, yeah. Many tenements apparently in Glasgow still have the slate stones on the roofs that were collected from Luss. And the quarries around there were in operation from 1489, which is a long time ago. Yeah, so there's still one, at least one quarry. There's one at Dumbarton, or kind of like at Milton. Right, I don't right. know what they... Oh yeah, of course, that's the Thompson one. Yes, aye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know if there's any other still on the go in the area. The last one around Luss closed in 1955 and apparently the sites now are largely obscured by moss but I'm guessing that we were describing around the fairy pools might be a kind of remnant of that probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. The last thing on rocks, <laughs> uh, you might be glad to know are um, just chatting about like semi-precious -pre like stones and semi-precious stones around the area in case you're interested in uh, doing some literal gold digging. 
there are some sites which show evidence to, uh, of extracting gold and silver from Loch Lomond side. Um, a recent uh, test though, um, the abandoned uh, Conanish lead mine near Ben Louie. Uh, ben Louie, which is northwest of Loch Lomond, um, it's the third highest peak in the in the national park below Ben Moore and Stob Benin. Hmm, who knows we'll if that's how that. you pronounce that. I've actually practiced that yesterday annoyingly, but I forgot. Showed that gold and silver could be mined from processing rock in that area, but who knows if it may be a planning permission thing why they don't. Yeah, so there is a gold mine at Tyndrum as well, but yeah, I don't know how prolific that is. Well, say though, there's good, some good BBC documentaries if anyone's interested in learning more about the gold mine. There's interviews, or they kind of follow some of the employees around for a few months. But yeah, it's interesting. One of them, yeah, one of the main problems they said that they had is that because it's in a national park trying to get planning permission yeah. for things is so difficult there's a lot of hoops to jump through and we'll come again to that later as well it's relevant for some other stuff and according to, to, to John Mitchell um, Loch Lomond side is a, also a good place for semi-precious stones so if you're really interested in your uh, zeolite crystals um, you'll want to go to Kilpatrick Hills and dodge the sword swingers yeah. no. Um, it's a reference to our last episode And next we'll talk about water storage and supply So we walk past a dog who's having a much more enjoyable time than me <laughs> Get up this hill Hiya <laughs> Some good audio for all of you In case you thought I was lying about this dog Weird by the way Going on to water storage, storage and supply, and supply. Harness and power from watermark uh, It's a mark of it's been, it's been happening, humans have been doing it for a while There's actually a house um, Not too far from my mum and dad's In Balloch, uh, if you walk To the back road, past Robin House Behind Balloch yeah. Park and you walk all the way up there You keep following the private track uh, You'll walk, there's this house which is like It has like a fucking tennis court In the back the back of it And like it looks onto the lock, it's unbelievable And it also has uh, a water mill, like an old water mill at the front. Aye, like the paddles yeah, kind of thing, yeah. yeah. And I remember it being a really nice one of that as well in the Killin, in the Killin fields. Is there? Yeah, there's, oh. there's a lot of, I think it's actually, maybe it's the, the bar, or the, no sorry, the inn around there. Aye, aye yeah, I know uh, um, With in, uh, industrialisation and population growth around central Scotland, um, Loch Lomond became a, a really key focus of, of water storage and supply. You know, especially when it came to the, you know, after the industrial revolution, uh, these populations uh, grew so quickly, so new things had to be done, and the uh, locks were looked to as a solution. Some people walking past it, who so obviously aren't interested in getting back for the sports later on, Matt. I'm guessing. No, I think they are. <laughs> They're out for the day. Yeah. Maybe they've got a bad feeling about it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what. I'm, maybe I'll go down, use the public facilities, and then come back up again. <laughs> if I get too nervous about the game later. So, uh, in 1855, though, uh, things started quite early on the on the, on the kind of uh, water storage supply front, because uh, Loch Katrine. East of Inversnaid on Loch Lomond, we can actually see Inversnaid. We can see, well, we, can, we, we could, could see <laughs> Loch Arklet behind it. If we were at the same height we were yeah. up there, but yeah. standing now, we'd probably if, go see Loch. Arklet if you gave me a jetpack and flew me upwards, um, I'd be able to see Loch Arklet right now. And behind it, Loch Katrine. Uh, in 1855, uh, Loch Katrine was chosen as the first major water supply site for for Glasgow and Loch Arklet, which lies between Loch Katrine. And here in Loch Lomond was uh, was was after it um, included in the same scheme in the early 20th century. Also, the Carron Reservoir in the Upper Endrick Valley apparently serves a southeastern shore population of Loch Lomond, um, as well as East Stirlingshire. Yeah, well, I think the loch's still used for as a res like Loch Lomond uses a reservoir for 
east of Glasgow. Is it? Yeah, I think like kind of Cumbernauld out towards and then out towards Edinburgh as well. That's good. Then a kind of a touch of the wild for Cumbernauld, which is basically just housing schemes and roundabouts. Yeah, pretty as far much. As I'm aware. That's so that's why you shouldn't dump things into the loch because yeah. people need to drink. People in Cumbernauld will eventually need to drink that water, so please stop that nonsense. My brother lives in Cumbernauld as well, so there is... My mum's from Cumbernauld, so I'm allowed to Yeah, yeah, we're allowed to do it. I mean, it's the same stuff. Just in case you think that it's only Dumbarton, we're throwing shade yeah, at everyone. Yeah, we kick similar. everyone. Exactly, including, including our own patches as well. So, uh, yeah, um, another one that we, we know well, Matt, is uh, <laughs> Carman Muir. Reservoir, just formed to serve the growing Vale of Leaven population. Any stories close to your heart about that area, Matt? Well, apart from the slice of my hand open. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, that's where we were for episode two as well. So there's... The folk fish there in the fishery? There's the fishery. I don't know if... The fishery must be the same as the... The reservoir? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know how it works. What do you expect us to do? Provide you with information or something? So, uh, you also have Glen Finless in the Luss Hills. Apparently, John Mitchell here was saying that um, moving on to kind of hydroelectric power rather than water supply, Matt, um, the use of hydroelectric power in Scotland, especially on that kind of large large scale, had been very low key um, right up to the Second World War. But the Loch Sloy hydroelectric scheme, which we are uh, walking afoot just now, on the west side of Loch Lomond, was formally opened on the 18th of October 1950. John says that uh, it was one of the great civil engineering achievements of the immediate post-war years and the first of the newly formed North Scotland Hydroelectric Board's large-scale projects to be completed. And uh, that included uh, the construction of a dam, which we failed to see today, yep. uh, between Ben Vorlich and Ben Vane, which we can see. You can see Ben Vorlich and Ben Vane, we can't see the dam. And um, it increased the locks, uh, Loch Sloy, which is, I guess, I don't know if they call that a quarry, Loch Sloy. Or at least would have been. Do you remember that from geography class? Oh, no, no. I, <laughs> geography was not one of my. Right. Well, I remember doing a bit of that, and I think a uh, quarry is kind of these upland little kind of lockins in the hills. I could be completely wrong there, but it is um, usually formed, I think, from glaciation, glaciation sort of digging mm-hmm. a sort of. Um, digging a sort of gap underneath the. Um, the rock in the hills and leaving that sort of vacant space for a, a big pond to develop, basically. But anyway. So that um, Loch Sloy was, was, was formed and obviously its, it's water levels was increased naturally by a massive 47 metres. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, it is a big dam from the pictures, yeah. it looks like. <laughs> from the reservoir, a 3.2 kilometre metre tunnel was driven through the heart of the mountain of Ben Vorlich to the generating station at Inverugles overlooking Loch Lomond, which is, uh, yeah, we'll take a picture, make sure you see a picture of it, but... Uh, if not, just Google it. Yeah, uh, from the car park at Inverugles, you look up and it's pretty awesome. Like, you see the pipes running up the hill. and Yeah, um, it's quite amazing as well that it looks so out of place. Yeah. You know, like, there's I nothing there. I think it looks... And, I'll, and I'll, this is the last thing I was going to mention about this topic, but Ben Lomond was saved from being chosen uh-huh. from a hydroelectric development after a 1976 plan was developed. And for some reason, I don't know if it's just bias, but I can't imagine Ben Lomond having that sort of thing on the sides of it, right? No. To me, that seems like fucking... A blasphemous act, right? But for some reason, I think this is fine. And I don't know. Yeah, I guess it, it's not in a place that's quite as iconic as Ben Lomond. Yeah. You're like, oh, it's just some hill. Yeah. Or like it's come down off a hill on and the I side guess of Lomond. Like, like a, I could be completely off the mark. I imagine a lot of the environment was sort of contorted to allow for this, right? And there's been quite a bit of an impact there. But and I guess you know the, the mitigation is that you're using hydroelectric power rather than oil and stuff. But um, anyway, so 
for me, um, I look at that, and I, as the same way I look at, I don't know, like a great piece of art, you know, industrial engineering, like a like a bridge or something, the Forth Road Bridge or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, like it's kind of not a stain on the environment. It's more sort of like a one of those maybe rare exceptions of kind of human-made sort of. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not as bad as other alternatives. I think it looks quite cool. So Ben Lomond could have followed that route, and apparently now I think since the seventies, planning permissions only became more difficult yep. to get. So it's unlikely that we'll see anything like that on the banks of Loch Lomond, uh, like a major scheme like that. Um, it's really unlikely. And now we'll move on to kind of like I guess uh, the, the final one of our early industries. I know we included hydroelectric power in that, but in water supply, but. Um, I just kind of wanted to talk because water is man has been manipulating that for energy yeah. for a long time. But we'll kind of move on to distilling. So um, I've put here, Matt. Rich elite bastards had their way in the 18th century and went out their way to fuck over local projects and produce. When the British government returned colonisers of Scotland at that time, uh, after the Union of Parliaments, voted to pass a bill that basically made it illegal as well as very expensive to run a small distillery. Not a fan of that. No. And I actually did some reading on this. Like I was trying to get my head around more of the context around the Union of Parliaments, and apparently, like, and obviously, I just, you don't really learn this stuff in school for some reason here, I right? Which is another. <laughs> but we did learn about Churchill, so there you go, and not the right stuff. But um, yeah, apparently, do you know they released like these, like all the newspapers, and they released these polls and stuff like that around the time, and like no, like a massive majority of people were in not in favour of the union. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me too much. Um, Although, and apparently they, they actually they impose a martial law to stop protests. Oh. Brutal, man. Anyway, well, luckily we've kind of rewound some of that uh, badness by yeah, devolution. Back. But, yeah. Um, and we're slowly, sorry, oh yeah, yeah. slowly um, clawing back powers. Um, and we'll see what happens later on, but anyway. So I think this law uh, in the mid sort of 18th century it imposed like sort of taxes that basically sort of crippled uh, the industry. Yes, so um, I, like we covered on the yeah. previous episode, was that the islands one? Yeah. You know, they would employ excise folk to come in and make sure that nobody was up to anything bad. Also, remember, we were talking about the canal uh, in Shfad. Yeah. And we were wondering what it was for. Yeah. 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 So the canal was to transport whiskey barrels. Uh-huh. I thought it was maybe for cooling oh, the, okay. the whiskey, but no, it's, it was for transportation. So the canal was from the distillery on the island, and that water linked it to the actual yeah, lock. Yeah, the lock, so yeah. then you'd be able to... Easily transport, rather than roll it across the island, you know, which was that crazy. very fun. And crazy terrain as well. Um, but yeah, I was doing some research on this, Matt, and on the, from your from your grandpa's stuff on the website, the Vale Leaving History website, and um, it said here, although the area was peaceful by the end of the 18th century, it was by no means entirely law-abiding. Uh, law-abiding. Illegal distilling of whisky was widespread both on the islands of the Loch and on the Loch side. In 1816, it was believed that stills on the island were producing 100 gallons a day for Glasgow alone. Uh, as late as 1820, the smallest new four stills operating on Cameron Muir, where there were five more in Balloch and Baturic estates. Most of the whisky was smuggled to Glasgow by Irishmen, interesting, who had newly arrived in the west of Scotland. Uh, and as you said, talks about the excise officials here. And they were so concerned that they um, uh, put a three-masted cutter, the King's Cutter, a boat with a crew of about four onto the lock. It was based at Balloch. Uh, there's no record of how effective it was, but it was still operating well into the 1820s. Interesting. So 
So a nice day in that front. Another story that came to my mind, and I just we can just maybe we can. Uh, I'll just load these at the front later, and maybe we can move them around. But for some reason, I, I just remembered that I was on Saturday night. We were out singing karaoke. With, I was out singing karaoke with some work colleagues in uh, a fantastic Malaysian restaurant, Soundbite in Glasgow. And uh, I said I would tell you about um, my ex-colleague who is Finnish. It's relevant for this story. She um, recalled to me her Hindu. Uh, in Glasgow, I think it took place. I, could, I think it took place in Glasgow. She was recalling to me her Hendu story, and she said, oh, "We managed to get uh, as part of the Hendu. We managed to get like a brilliant hotel with a really good sauna booked out." And she said, um, "Yeah, it's part. Of, we did like a ceremony thing in the sauna where I wore one of my boyfriend's old T-shirts, and then like did some sort of recited some sort of weird spoken word stuff to banish." The ghosts of all then I quote the ghosts of the bitches that he had been with before me. <laughs> Interesting. And then after that I had to say all of the names of the oh, men that I had sake. been with <laughs> before him as a way to kind of I don't know. It worked both ways there. I, I guess clean new slate or something, I'm not sure. I thought that was very wild. Don't know why I remembered about that, but anyway. Um, there's a Should we move on to what we're actually about to be talking about? That's a good Maybe if you're looking for creative ideas for your wedding Your nuptials, maybe you can do that instead Maybe that'll catch on There's a lot of nice wedding venues in the lock yeah. if, you want, if you want to do that, then let us know Please uh, message us if you've done that um, But yeah, let's go on to the podcast yeah. I think I uh, finished off about to finish off by saying that uh, on the topic of illegal whiskey distilling recently um, there was a discovery from I think Forestry Scotland uh, Forestry and Land Commission I think it's called of uh, 18th century farmsteads of the wee brook Cowran and the big brook Cowran I think or Caroon or something including their large corn drying kills the remains of them were discovered near a uh, Near Lockhart, so it's actually I think between here and Lockhart. Is it right? So Lockhart's out towards Calendar, is that? Yes, yeah. that's that's right. Yeah. So um, basic east of Loch Lomond. Yeah. Um, so between Rower Denning, on the east bank of Loch Lomond, the shadow of Ben Lomond and Lockhart, you might find these uh, two old farmsteads. They've been digitally documented now. Uh, basically, yeah, they found the remains of, including these old drying kilns. So yeah, there's some archaeology going on around them, I think, currently. But the kind of stuff that you can uh, see the marks in the in the country of them, anyway. And that brings us on to just again a wee a wee bit here on sort of the shift from communal rural living, which is much more common before the industrial age, and the shift to sort of urban living and the industrialised working practices, which we'll go on to in a wee second around the area. But yeah, so um, the drift in the land. Oh. Do not use disposable barbecues within the vicinity of this structure. We're yes. currently standing under a wooden pyramid. You'd think that would... Uh... Yeah, so we're in. We're, we're standing behind Inveruglis Monument. We're about to look out. It's a big kind of pyramidy thing. We walk out. What's happened there? Why is it fenced off the, chair, the seats? Someone been using a disposable barbecue. I don't up know, there. Maybe they have, I. Silly bastards. Let's walk down here. 
This is lovely. The only yeah. thing that's missing is a couple of Camden off-menu IPAs. Good point, mate. Source one. Ask a passerby. Yep, I'm just sitting on the rock. Out off the front of that Inveruglish monument. Just right on the edge of the water. Lovely, man. Sun in our faces. Gorgeous scenes. My now clean-ish looking boots, despite the fact that they... Yeah, they've, they've scrubbed up quite well. There's a lounging. Aye, so uh, where was I? Going from communal land use to the industrial age. Yeah. And um, if my notes will let me find my place... Yeah, so what I was saying is the drift from the land during the 18th and 19th centuries, consequence of the agricultural reforms that are taking place and sort of less labour-intensive work practices that are being introduced on these kind of farms, meant that um, basically there was a loss in sort of labour needed for these kind of practices. And this caused like a significant displacement of, a, of, of significant proportions of Loch Lomond side rural populations. Um, and this was happening at the same time there was a loss of sort of basically all common land through successive enclosures of land by contentious landowners as they're called here in John Mitchell's book. And that deprived many people of the livelihoods that they had before of self-sufficiency uh, on their own small holding farms. Uh, and the, you know, at the same time, as I said, there's this amalgamation and mechanisation of farms cutting back in the number of workers needed. And in the uplands as well, uh, many of the long-standing farming tenants were, uh, as it says here, obliged to vacate their holdings to allow the incoming flock masters to run enough sheep into the emptied glens to meet the increased rents. Parishes on the east side of the lock experienced the greatest exodus of people, so that's Drummond and Buchanan, both lost more than a third of their inhabitants yeah. during the second half of the 18th century. I dread that loss went from something like 950 inhabitants to 450 in the space of or a pretty short space of time, so that's nearly roughly about half the population had to leave. Mm. And the mainly Gaelic-speaking population of Buchanan, so that's kind of like near Gartaharn. Uh, I think, so there's like Milton of Buchanan in between Drimmon and Balmaha, right. so I don't know if it's around okay. that area. Right. The Gaelic-speaking population of that area declined by a similar number again over the next 30 years, so yeah, again losing a sort of third of its inhabitants. One part of this Highland Parish was entirely denuded uh, of its residents, and the Kirk Session records showing that where 63 families had once lived, the land was entirely given over to sheep. It's really devaluing human life, isn't it? It's like, I'd rather have sheep living here than you. Yeah, and I, you know, I think at this time there's no way that people would have understood how this was life in these areas was going to maybe did they that change it was going to change forever and you know up to this point now well maybe the advent of kind of home workings made things slightly different but mm. you know it's still you can't imagine these big you know groups of people uh, families and communities living in these areas it's, they're so quiet now and under the terms of new leases coming into effect it was not unusual to have stipulated that every abandoned steading be dismantled or at least rendered uninhabitable by removing the roofs and I think we talked a little bit of kind of stuff in, in sort of, uh, we, we talked about bothies and, you know, bothie culture. Yep, like the so landowners at this time in the glens and the highlands did their best to try and destroy these old farm standings, but kind of they couldn't really keep up with the people that were using them and trying to re recover them. So, yeah, constant battle between bastard and elites and massive landowners and um, kind of people just trying to live their lives, That's basically. Normal folk. Yeah. Um, the ruins of some of these homesteads can still be seen in the area. 
providing a quite a poignant reminder of the way that kind of life has disappeared. And and, and I think uh, John Mitchell yeah, actually there's a brilliant kind of excerpt here in that book about. He says that compared to the national outcry that followed the enforced removal of rural people in favour of sheep elsewhere in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, uh, he's referring to the Highland clearances, which are quite famous, infamous. This precursor attracted remarkably little public attention and critical comment. And I think he links it to the fact that you know back then and maybe even now it was kind of justified that the pull factors were as strong as the push factors. Um, we're about to move on to why it's basically the growing textile industries and yep. around uh, the River Leaven and the Clyde. But yeah, it still doesn't. I don't. I think if you were to ask these people, can we stay where we are? Um, you know, and have our old way of life, they probably would have said, yeah. But, I'd imagine so. Yeah. But instead, yeah, people were uprooted and folks start to move to the towns, which brings us on to the bleach, the dye and the print works. Yes. Matt. So there was a lot of bleach, dye and print works. It moves from bleach to dye and then to print on the river leaving. So the leaving's the only outlet from the lock. It flows from Balloch out to the Dumbarton past... So Jameson, Renton, Alexandra, Bonhill, and then goes out in at the Clyde and Dumbarton. So the Vale, that's kind of a a local term for the area. Vale of Leaven includes Balak, Renton, yeah. Alexandra, Bonhill, Jameson. So the Leaven's one of the, the fastest flowing rivers in Scotland and it was used due to the, the fast current and the cleanliness of the water. It had been pretty much untouched up until then. So the, this, plus the abundance of fields and braes near its banks, attracted the bleach dye and print works to open factories in the Vale, and the Vale can thank this industry for a boost in population. So the course of the river has changed naturally multiple times, but since then it's been set to follow a predetermined mm-hmm. course. In the 16th century, bulwark was put in to shore up weak points and at the same time an area off the east bank was taken off and attached to the west yeah. and I said uh, if there's certain angles you can see it, the leaving splits into and goes round past like a almost like an island in the middle yeah. of it that's between Renton and kind of Dilly Chip so prior to this I guess it still kind of is the river leaving was famous for trout and salmon fishing but due to the bleach fields building the sheds canals and dams this led to an increase in pollution unsurprisingly the discharge of impurities and heating of water which extracted oxygen funnily enough turned out to be fatal for fish I wonder how the f- I mean you see people fishing and leaving now obviously I wonder how it's changed back in any way I think it's been pollution's maybe not quite as bad but I think overfishing and things like that over the years has probably led to a, a yeah. decrease before 1771 Tobias Smollett wrote of pure waters but by uh, 1788 a writer and keen angler said the whole north of the river was taken up by bleach works mm. now there was then legal disputes between the owner of the factories and the, the owners of the fishing rights the fishing rights I think went from monks had it and then it went to Dumbarton then Coons yeah. and then I think it was then passed on to the Loch Lomond Angling Association so the, this resulted in, a, in an agreement being reached where the factory owners would ensure that the water put back into the leaving was in a pure state, but the pollution obviously continued to occur. Yeah. Thanks to this, but also I think there was other factors which contributed. So where, where were the, the, the bleach works? So the first bleach works were put in at Dalhorn and Renton in 1715 and then extended to Cordo, which slightly towards Alexandria, I think. Right. Or, yeah, I think... It was kind of outside Renton, between Alexandria and Renton. So these were put in in 1791. 
Now the method they used was to spread cloth across nearby fields and the material would be naturally bleached by the sun but they built waterways to put water into the fields so they could spray the material with the water and beach hedges were also planted to prevent the cloth blowing away. Some of the names associated with this were Johnston, Matheson, Scott, Buchanan, Wiley and Stirling. The Stirlings built Tully Castle which is uh, up behind Balloch, I think. See when you're walking over the footbridge to go over the 82. Uh -huh. I think it's All right. maybe not up there, but kind of in that area, I think it's maybe back down the 82. Right, right, okay. Well, we'll talk more about Stirlings in a wee bit. Yeah. So, Dine and is that Calico. Calico, yeah. Yeah, so this followed the bleaching uh, with the first print works opening that leaving field which is current day Antarctic. Oh my, the tourist attraction <laughs> yeah. That's just quickly on that, I mean, don't know if anyone in the area knows, like, there's lots of tourists, like, Scotland signs for Antarctic Village. But, like, for anyone who's not been to Antarctic Village, don't go. Well, this is... that is harsh? A, no, it's harsh. I mean, it's, I think <laughs> that's the kind of place that a coach holiday stops. Kind of stops up. Yeah. Throwback <laughs> to our last episode. Yeah, that shows you the... Yeah. It's like a, it's basically an industrial estate with like a sort of um, weird kind of canteen and gift shop. Yeah, in it. so I think they sell like outdoor clothing and things like that, and oh, you can right. buy like wool jumpers, okay. stuff like that. Basically, things that old people are into. Cool, right? Okay, well, I won't <laughs> dispute that, Matt. Um, but sorry, I took you. You said that. No, um, no, that's, yeah, a, that's okay. That 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 first print works was uh, opened at the current day Antarctic in Leavenfield in 1760. That's what you were saying. Yeah. So the printing was uh, achieved by using pre-prepared blocks, but then uh, copper cylinders and flat metal plates were used okay. later on, and then uh, at Crofton Gay. Okay. I'm gonna go with that. Mm -hmm. South of Antarctic, Yarndine was introduced in 1826. The site was first used as a bleach field in 1790, and then in 1845 it was then used for printing. Then between these two works, there was Charleston engraving works where copper rollers were engraved, so that would have been used for the printing process, I think. So you're seeing all the the things required to, you know, you can produce everything required yeah. in a small area. Interesting. So, kind of self-sufficient even yeah. if you are absolutely rinsing the environment and like a bit like shit building which we'll come on to later mm -hmm. on than Barton, yeah. so then all three were amalgamated in 1850 by John Ewing Orr with uh, Croft and Gave retaining the name The Craft with locals um, some other families associated with this were the Christie's which gifted Christie Park right. to the people nice park yeah small but um, what about n not always nice but by that time you went the mm. New Year, you walked back from my. Oh yeah, I was in a a, a fairly inebriated state. Uh, I'd been, uh, yeah, yeah. been manipulated state. <laughs> my mind was bent. <laughs> <laughs> you stood up the entire for somebody, uh, Matt and a few other folk came to mind for Hogmanay, and Matt didn't sit down. Right, we were there for about four hours. Yeah, didn't feel like it. Sitting, sitting, bug fast. Yeah. Didn't want to sit down. Anyway, you walk so, back, back, back home via Christie Park to see some weird stuff. Yeah, so I heard someone shouting behind me and I was like, oh no, this was like four o'clock in the morning. It had been snowing, the snow had kind of started to melt as well, so it was just slush under me. I was like, if I need to run here, I'm going to go right on Mars. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, it can be nice. It depends yeah. what time of day you go at. And the Brocks of Bromley also presented their house or Brimley, sorry, right. uh, presented their house Brimley as a hospital. Oh, right, okay. 
1784, Leaving Bank Works were established as a print works by Watson and Arthur. They were then purchased by Stuart of Lennox Bank and finally taken over by Alexander Oryun, who is the brother of John Oryun. So there's a bit of inbreeding going on there financially. Uh, um, <laughs> it was locally known as the Highfield or Hayfield. Uh, to distinguish Lower Leaving Bank, which was the Layfield, right. which was also used for Yarndine and also taken over by Alexander. A lot of financial Yeah, I think though, if you're coming from money, then obviously, like, yeah. there was only a certain amount of folk at the time that would have been rich, so the name of the works was then changed to Milton to name it after a nearby farm. Right. There was also Dilly Chip Works, which commenced in 1848 which was started by the Allen brothers but bought by Turnbull and Arthur in 1855 and then Mr Alexander Orr went on to buy it in 1864 with Yarndine becoming a specialty of the Dilly Works or I've called it a Dilly Special <laughs> uh, so generally the works on the West Bank of the Leaving were owned by John Orr Ewing and uh, works on the East were owned by Alexander Orr Ewing pronounced John's name wrong there. Anyway, there was two that weren't, but in 1894, the four works were all amalgamated with Dalhorn and Cordale, so there would have been six put together to form uh, United Turkey Red Coy. Two of the works that weren't amalgamated were Dalmonic, which was on the east, and Ferryfield as well, so a bit of a monopoly going on there. Yeah, yeah. So the works at Dalmonic had originated in 1786 with several companies associated with it until the 1830s. The premises were burnt down in 1812 but rebuilt by Henry Bell who was of Comet fame I think he was quite influential in steamship uh, steam powered things which kind of relates I'll come on to slightly later so the works were then passed on to James Black and numerous partners and uh, and 1898 the works became part of the Calico Printers Association which was originally from Manchester. I think they also took over works around places like Lennox Town, Glasgow, a few other bits and around there. Right. So yeah the ferry fields commenced bleaching around 1786 and by 1831 they were undertaking block printing and dyeing and this is where it relates to Henry Bell. Machine printing followed the introduction of steam-powered machinery as the, the water wheels, which we've also touched on, weren't powerful enough. The water wheels were then used to power the lades right. to control the water flow. Between then and 1906, it was owned by a few other folk and again it was taken over by Calico Print Association or Printers Association. The other two dye works were at Melbourne, which is next to the Vale Leaving Academy. So again, in between, that's where the football pitches as well for the Vale Juniors in between Alexandria and and Renton another one was Arthurston Mill so the site in Melbourne was a pyroligneous site I think we touched on that on the last episode maybe or the one before with the the product being salts distilled from the woods and then the the salts were used in the dyeing process and there was another dye work at Jameston so although this isn't related to the dyeing and bleaching, the river leaving did attract radium, I was about to say radiation production, radium. radium production, and the works at Jameston was the first of its kind in Scotland. Previously, radium production took place in France and Germany. Austria was able to produce the ore 
and they'd sell it to France and Germany to produce it. But what was radium used? I'm not entirely sure. I'll um, have a quick read. Uh, well, radium uh, is radioactive, a naturally occurring radioactive metal formed by the decay of uranium and thorium. Uh, so, radium it emits, when it decays, it emits ionising radiation as a byproduct which can excite fluorescent chemicals and cause radioluminescence. Maybe that's what it, they were looking to create some fluorescent Some fluorescent light. Perhaps, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Maybe used for the neon signs on Mr Tongues in Alexandria, perhaps. Mr Noodles. Mr Noodles as well. Um, uh, so, yeah, the World War can't... What is it? Oh. You're right there. You swallowed a eel. Uh, World War One cut off the supply from Germany, so mm. they opened the works. Right. And after World War One, the dyeing industry was on its knees, the works shutting. The Argyle Motorworks factory was meant to be taken over a couple of times. Before, but the deals fell through. Before a French company from Lyon became interested in 1929, but it was built by a, a Swiss company, and it became the property of British Silk Dyeing in 1960. So I think there was a lot of Swiss workers that came over, yeah. and that was at the Silk Factory. Um, and my great grandpa, who was spoke a load of different languages, he would voluntarily teach. English to the Swiss folk. to the Swiss you say they were German speaking yeah so they were German speaking he would teach them English and then you, we were chatting to your brother about this just randomly the other day Matt and he said that he said that that was why the schools around here taught German yeah apparently that's so did I learn German in primary yeah, school yeah so did I um, yeah. so yeah the that was we were all expected to go into the silkworks is that why <laughs> the non-existent silkworks yeah. so yeah just a wee interesting yeah, but there. Um, well, so there was a the Leaving Bank Works tried to compete with the new works that were set up by the Swiss company, but didn't have the resources. Hmm. Moving on, I've mentioned about the steam powered machinery and water wheels, the towpath. You know the path that goes along the Leaving between Balak and uh, well, right along the Leaving. Yeah. I thought it was tow as in T O E, just because you know you're you're on your toes when you're walking oh, right, along. Right, right. But it's. T-O-W T-O-W yeah. path So that was used By horses To tow machinery Up yeah. and down the leaving That makes a lot of sense Yeah it makes a lot more but, but sense they would have been have, They had to be on their toes <laughs> Well they were, they were on their hooves They were on their We're going with the hoof path now Yeah might as well So Each of the works Were kind of competing With each other Installing more boilers And bigger And newer And the The boilers started coming in To the industry And the 1870s, most of the works were steam powered up until the 1930s, although the Alexandria works got lucky in 1913. Most of the works are now defunct but have been turned into other premises, for example, Antarctics, yeah. or just knocked down and turned into houses. Well, Matt, yeah, the next big one here is um, to talk about shipbuilding, which I want to touch on a little bit, but alongside glass making, the Barton became particular became famous for shipbuilding during the Industrial Revolution in Britain. Though shipbuilding uh, from wood on the river leaving dated back at least to the time of Robert the Bruce in the early 14th century. The use of iron in shipbuilding though, that marked the point where Dumbarton really came into its own uh, the industry. Um, they built boats bigger than that one over there that we guys rafting across and it looks very idyllic. 
need to record the podcast in one of those although we did last time we tried going on a raft it didn't work yeah I was going to say that doesn't look like he needs a, an adapter to blow it no, up that's, I think that's solid solid canoe that guy's got there lovely. just need to get a roof rack lovely scenes yeah a wee beer hat yeah so um, I think that if you I've actually not been there but apparently it's quite cool I visited yeah. the Scottish Maritime Museum in Barton I went when I was about 10 and I f- uh, enjoyed it so I mean I've if I could hold my attention when I was 10 years old, it must be relatively interesting. I can speak from experience that Matt was a lot more uh, active <laughs> at, 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 at that age, around that age. Uh, just now. horrendous, undiagnosed ADHD. <laughs> yeah, he was, you were certainly, you certainly bounced about the place quite a lot. Anyway, so um, that holds the, the that Mar- Scottish Maritime Museum in Barton holds the Denny Ship Model Experiment Tank. Which uh, focuses on the naval architect William Denny Jr. and his company, William Denny and Brothers in Dumbarton amongst the most innovative shipbuilding companies in the world, responsible for ships such as the Cutty Sark, which is currently exhibited in London, unsurprisingly. <laughs> stolen stolen by the again! Again, there they are, doing their thing. We'll make, get a wee, um, I'll make a wee jingle for every time the, yeah. the Empire steals the stole, something. The stolen by the Brits jingle. <laughs> Let's enter that here. Uh, until they closed in 1963, uh, that is the, um, the Denny Brothers uh, Company, completed in 1883, Sorry, until the the um, yeah, that, uh, what I should have said is that sh- that um, like yeah, the company closed in 1963, but completed in 1883, uh, the tank, the the ship model experiment tank, was the world's first commercial example of a ship testing yeah, tank. So, what did you say that they would build? Well, scaled down. Is that what you're guessing? That's what I'm guessing from from my. I'm not. I should really just visit the museum, but um. I'm pretty, pretty sure. sure they, I'm, I'm pretty sure they um, build sort of scale to you know scale models of the boats, and then um, this tank allows them to kind of test their buoyancy and whatnot, which seems a pretty good idea. And the locally built uh, Marjorie boat in Dumbarton was the first ever steamship to cross the English Channel. It's a fact for you. And between 1839 and 1859, over 360 vessels were built in Dumbarton. And over the next two decades, 16 different yards would become engaged in activity with associated foundries, rope works, sail and boiler makers giving further employment to locals. So again, that kind of self-sustainability. I guess you probably have to be, without yeah. the likes of, if everything's getting brought, either sailed, which would be quite slow, or being towed by horse, it's a slow, slow process. Yeah, and I was also listening to the Blind Boy podcast recently, and he was trying to put into context how different the world was before telephones and even telegrams and stuff like that, like... There wasn't a transatlantic cable for a long time, you know, in this period, I think. Um, I can't remember when exactly that was established, but obviously, you know, communications across the world were very slow, so international trade was not anywhere near where it is now. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can get stuff transported from China so easily now. Um, it communicated and transported so easily compared to back then, so, yeah. But these that's the thing, you know, these operations were all self-sufficient. They employed loads of people in the area. You know, not that everything was rosy and stuff like that, but, yeah, it's a very different time. Might have touched a little bit on some of these names already, but moving on to car production, which was actually quite significant as well, Matt. Yes. The Argyle Works in Alexandria were in 1906 building more cars per year than any competitor outside the USA. But the advent of the war, assuming that's the First World War, I think so, yeah. Yeah, meant that the works were morphed into a munitions factory, that what people call the torpedo factory, and the lock loaned outlets. I thought it was because the torpedoes, and it probably is, but they also got a bit on this later. They also made a car called the Torpedo. Oh, right. 
So I don't know which one it is. Ah, uh, both both work. But now that building is Loch Lomond Outlets, it's actually really impressive. It's, like it's, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, it's like a kind of it, it looks like almost like a hollow facade of a building, but there is sort of shopping outlets in it right now. And I've not been there in a long time, but I used there used to be like a, a big cafe canteen in the yeah. top floor. Do you remember that? And it had a really weird sort of very eighties sort of decor. Aye, although the inside, like the kind of lobby area it's all marble yeah, and yeah. you can look up into the dome yeah yeah. so with that it would be what the outlets is now that would be like the facade and then behind that it would yeah. be like a factory yeah. so where the car park is mm-hmm. I assume that would be reaching out there yeah so yeah you can um, there's a wee antique shop in there that I like to visit ones, but yeah there's other, there's other stuff going on so yeah I've got a little um, bit here on the actual uh, torpedo factory map yeah so it started with Alexander Govan, who owned a small car factory in Bridgeton, Glasgow, which is... Bridgeton. Bridgeton. <laughs> if you want to say it in Scots, then yes. So that's the East End. East End of Glasgow. Um, he was responsible for the Argyle Motorworks. So although the car industry was at its infancy at this point, Govan had completed several models before the end of the 1800s, producing around 10 cars a week. So that kind of ties in with what you were saying yeah. about being pretty prolific. Yeah. And in 1904, one of his cars made it from Land's End to John O'Groats in a whopping 42 hours. <laughs> Rapid. Yeah, probably faster than the Megabus. Well, yeah. I mean, the last time I took the Megabus, it was stalled in Preston for about two and a half hours whilst people um, fought with each other on the bus. So that was... I think I'd have preferred to be in that car, let's put it that way. <laughs> At least no one would be shouting at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he, he formed a company known at, or to be known as Argyle Motorworks with the uh, building operations commencing the 10th of April 1905. It officially opened in June 1906, but production had already commenced before this. At the time, apart from bulldozers and excavators, there was not much mechanical devices used. So yeah, it's kind of quite pioneering there. Got a wee bit on the building here. So the, the stoneworks was hand-wrought, the dome encased in gold leaf, and it's said to have alone the dome and the gold leaf cost two grand at the time. The starting capital was 500,000 with 250,000 being spent on the building cost. The building is stunning, especially seen as it was a, you know, a factory with a red sandstone frontage, shapely tower, carved entrance and white clock face on the dome, which they've started illuminating, I can see from the house. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. nice, eh? So yeah, in 1910, they built the torpedo car for a price of £445 tax on it. Hi. I think if you paid £445 for a car at the minute, you would get it outside of where you drove it yeah. from, and that, that's, your, that's your whack. Uh, so the tax on this was four guineas. In 1912, the double Phaeton came out, £395, also a tax of four guineas. I don't know how they're calculating this Wouldn't tax. Wouldn't get that, Arnold Shark. <laughs> They rat. <laughs> and the more luxurious HP Prince Henry single sleeve valve car cost £690 with tax of six guineas. I'm not sure that. Um, I'm not sure how to feel about driving a Prince Henry single sleeve valve, valve car. Yeah. And the most expensive in the range being the 25 HP limousine Landolette, which cost £800 and a tax of six guineas. See, now I we're don't... outside my budget, man. <laughs> I think, well, the first one was outside my budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
the factory also built fire engines for other towns, but very kindly kept one for themselves. I don't know if they just like like that fell off the back of the lorry. So I don't know where it went. <laughs> Look, mate, I've got this fire engine for. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so going on to the sleeve valve, they introduced the Burt McCollum sleeve valve, which was all... Burt McCollum sounds like a Scottish ref. Is he refereeing the game today? <laughs> Quite possibly. I'd rather not know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Some dead guy? Yeah. Burt McCollum, not John Beaton, as far as I'm not aware. John Beaton is, is alive at the minute. <laughs> Uh, so this, the it was also claimed that this sleeve valve was the same as the Daimler and Co valve, which resulted in a, a lawsuit. But the lawsuit showed that our guys didn't actually pirate their rivals. So there's a wee valve scandal for you yeah. guys. If anyone's interested, yeah. the company also broke the record at Brooklands. I don't know if that was for speed, right? Okay. Which is apparently the birthplace of British motorsport. No idea about that. Um, mate. That's I'm not my not game. Interested. Really, but, uh, imagine. So, uh, in 1907, Govan Alexander, Govan that is. Yeah, it just says Govan Gov died Gov suddenly. I'm like, gosh, <laughs> he must be having a real resurgence right now. Um, age 41. Yeah, so Alexander Gov Govan died. <laughs> uh, Govan Drive, which is next to. Is that Dempsey's? Right, yeah, okay, right. Yeah, so that was named after him. And Dempsey's our, pub. Yeah. You ever get to Dempsey's? I've not, have you? No, I think they used, my brother used to go underage discos there. Well, that probably, what, like, the discos were underage or he was? The discos were underage. Right. Yeah. Okay. Just I don't know if they still do them. If anyone's going to the underage disco at Dempsey's, let us know. If that, but only don't if let us know, actually. actually don't please. let us know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's an Argyle Street which was named after the factory as well. Okay. Unfortunately, by 1908, the firm had gone into liquidation, but was reorganised as Argyles Limited. The incoming managing director was a representative of Dunlop Co., with Mr Dunlop inventing the pneumatic tyre. Oh, yeah. PE teacher? <laughs> no, not that one. No. A different one. Two apprentice mechanics, Matt, who worked on the same bench in 1907. Yep. Were John Logie Baird and Oliver Hutchinson of Belfast. So John Logie Baird of Ellensborough. Should I probably put that in there if I was mentioning Hutchinson's from Belfast? Yeah. Guy uh, John Logie Baird uh, invented the TV. Yes. Yeah. Although is there not a bit of debate Aye. about that? Was that an Italian that I found? Well, I know that? I've heard Italians say that there's another guy who invented it. Um, well, where's his name? Don't know, but I can very much sit on the fence in this one, Matt. So I'm happy to do to do so. <laughs> Um, yeah, quite an interesting story that, Matt. Would you like to expand? Yeah, so they, they became pals after working on the, the same bench together as apprentices um, and designed the television. Baird was the brains of the operation and Hutchison the energy. I don't know what that means. <laughs> that harsh and Hutchison, isn't it? <laughs> oh, he does a lot of running about. He's, he's really, really, really a good he, he, guy. He works hard. He works hard. He puts, he puts in an effort. That's like... Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it turns out that... Uh, Oliver Hutchinson's face was the first thing that was ever broadcast. There you go, eh? What an honour. Right, so... I think this, yeah, eventually in uh, 1914, this firm then went into liquidation. Not doing very well here. No. With World War I starting... I believe there are no 500-year-old businesses. <laughs> so disappointing. Ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah, World War I started a couple of weeks after the firm went into liquidation. Had the war started earlier they would have probably been saved ah rats ah you know crumbs. How, could they, how could they not was it Franz Ferdinand to get 
shot. Shot, yeah. yeah. How could they not have done that earlier on? A couple of weeks earlier, they saved the works. The Black Hand Gang that did that. Selfish. So, yeah, the works were then moved back to Bridgeton, or Brighton, (laughs) uh, where they made cars until 1928. So, well, the factory in the Vale stayed in operation, but they they moved on to making munitions by this point, uh, with Armstrong and Whitworth taking it over. And then in 1916, the Ministry of Munitions took over. And when the war ended in 1918, they closed the factory, which lay empty until 1926, when Scotch Amalgamated Silks made a gesture to buy it, but nothing happened. Yep, and then the Vale had to wait until 1935, when the factory was taken over by Admiralty to make torpedoes, with it closing in 1969. But they remained... I don't... didn't understand this. They remained open until 1971 when they removed themselves, <laughs> which again, I, I, I don't know. But apparently, workers organised rota of shifts to prevent the machinery being taken away. So I don't know if they just. Well, the owners sort of vacated before the workers did, maybe, or something? Yeah, like that. maybe. And then obviously, they'd want to get the machinery out because it's probably Aye. worth selling, and the workers stayed. They must have just been basically. Someone constantly, well, constantly living in the. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. That's but they, they, that failed. Yeah. That failed. I don't know. You can only do that for so long. Yeah. <laughs> you can't live. It's a shame. Um, yeah. So um, I've got a little bit a uh, quick wee thing on planes. Uh, the Blackburn Aircraft Company came to Dumbarton in the late 1930s, Matt, and employed around 4,000 people in its peak to build aircrafts in the midst of war in Europe. That's quite something to do. Um, so. That's us, Matt, really kind of going through the industrial history. A lot has changed. All these old works are closed. You know, the reasons for, like, population boom. First of all, you know, uh, the agricultural sort of way of living that ended with the Industrial Revolution, that marked populations moving away from these highland parishes around Loch Lomond to the towns around the Vale and Barton. And then... What caused those big populations to boom? Those industries ended as well, or the government failed them, and and now you know, deindustrialisation. Watch any Ken Loach film, you can that that is basically what's happened in this area. <laughs> you know, any Ken Loach film, basically, and um, well, not quite. I, I just not the one that shakes the barley or anything like that. But like, uh, you know what I mean? No, that's quite uh, specific. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although you know the Brits, um, but uh, yeah. So today. There are, there are kind of like manufacturing stuff going on. I mean, well, some, some, some sort of factories and stuff. Yeah, uh, so there's a Greco yeah. near Dumbarton. I think they are mainly building generators. Yeah, I mean, that's actually quite like, that's sort of the, would you say that's kind of the, the jewel in the crown of like, you know, like West of Scotland yeah, manufacturing I, these I, days? I, I also, I think that's quite like a, if you're leaving school, that's probably one of the most sought after yeah. apprenticeships. Yeah. And yeah. it's well paying, you get shares in the company as well, I think. Oh, so right, cool, cool. I think there's quite a lot of, Quite a lot of benefits. I for think that. there was. I don't know much of discos around it, but I think there's some like kind of, um, like some some good good sort of uh, PR from. They get good PR from the fact that like they probably could have put their offices like some of their offices anywhere, and they've kept one in Dumbarton. Yeah. yeah. The, the the folk who or the guy who founded it, I think, um, is from the area. Oh right. So, um, well that's where the original sort of place was. So. Um, but no, Agreco's like big, a big company. Like they had generators running for the South Africa 2010 World Cup. Well, I don't know why I knew that. I just, there's a few folk I knew from school uh, who ended up going to 
I've been France for the Euros in 2016. All right. And then maybe out to Russia in 2018 as well. So cool. certainly some perks. Yeah. And then there's the um, yeah the Chivas whiskey. Um, yeah. So I think that's a bottling plant. Yeah. So yeah, and um, the old Polaroid. Yeah, which well, I uh, Polaroid. I don't know what. I mean, glasses in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like spectacles, not aye. drinking glasses. Uh, yeah, not receptacles. not tumblers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> spectacles, not receptacles. Um, so yeah, but but mainly, you know, like a lot of towns around the UK, like they're all kind of commuting towns nowadays. Really, they kind of serve uh, more up. If people go into the offices, they're going around Glasgow and stuff usually, right? And you know, like any other town, if there's there's small businesses happening, but it's quite hard, especially if you try to do something creative, you know, uh, to survive. I think more recently, there's in the top we talked about kind of distilling. There's there's kind of uh, uh, distilleries kind of reopened. Yeah, well, there's the Loch Lomond Distillery. That's been I think that stayed open. That's down next to Antarctic. Yeah, and then there's Loch Lomond Brewery, which is in the Martin Industrial Estate next to uh, the gym I go to. The, the yeah, they used to be. Down in the industrial estate with Antarctic yeah, as right, well, yeah. but they've obviously moved premises because they're. And their 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 stuff's amazing, man. I think they're gonna. They're. I know that in the plans to redevelop around Ballock Town Square, well Ballock train station to develop a square around there. I mean that's kind of controversial, but um, there's lots of base. basically there's a big plan to redevelop Ballock, and maybe we'll come on to that later in another episode. But um, there, I think there was a distillery, a kind of showy distillery. A showy brewery, sorry, and visitor centre mooted for that plan. Yeah. Um, kind of cool. I mean, the actual industrial estate brewery is really cool from the outside. Yeah, the only problem nice. with that is it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. Ah, exactly. Like, yeah. there's not a. You can well, get a train to rent and then walk across uh, that bridge. Uh, 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 I've heard some bad, bad stories about that. <laughs> someone I know nearly, well, someone attempted to take their phone off them, just like a group of 16 year olds. <laughs> right, right, right. Maybe I had to go. <laughs> well, if you don't fancy slapping anyone, then it'd be get attacked. <laughs> if you don't like maybe. slapping children, then don't. Yeah. But their their beers are amazing. Um, actually, Loch Lomond Brewery. So, um, yeah, hopefully more businesses like that can, can sort of operate. But it's hard. It's hard to do it in this country, and you know, lack of support you get. And um, but yeah, so the things things are kind of some things are changing for the better. And I think tourism is really the biggest industry industry here right now. And um, it's you know. I think it's a battle now to to, to try and balance uh, the good with the bad, um, try and get the area to grow sustainably, but um, through tourism as well and um, not take advantage of the area too yeah, much. Yeah, but I think the problem with that is like the more people that come to the area, the more you need to develop it. So it's got like yeah. a, a there's constant... not enough accommodation and the transport systems are always under stress. There's one train route coming into Balloch and up where we are now, we are next to the Highland. The, the would you call it the the train the train line that goes from oh, Helmsburg yeah, Upper I, yeah yeah so there's a train that goes from Helmsburg Upper through Arica up to Oban which actually I've never taken before and absolutely yeah so I'd love to do it um, so that's great that that exists as well but other than that it's the A82 from Glasgow through to Balloch or maybe coming via Stirling in the which north which is even worse so like and it's just jam packed during the summer and a busy day it's really hard to get in and out so until the advent of of um, <laughs> Uh, Jetpacks. Well, basically, like, genuinely, like aerocraft, like buses and stuff like that, which I think like companies like Google and Amazon are already like trialing. So, genuinely, I'm quite interested to see how that changes a, a rural area like this because the road systems are so windy and they, the, the terrain's so challenging that, like, you know, 
driving a car from quite a, over quite a relatively small distance takes a long, long time. Mm. You know, I mean, we're looking at Inversnaid Hotel here across the water from Inverugglas, across the loch, and, you know, it's it's not easy to drive to Inversnaid. You need no, to kind of I... go way inland. It's on the bank of the loch, but you can't just... There's no road that goes along that east bank past Rower Denon. Yeah. So, so you either need to go... I think we've told, spoken about this before, out towards, like, Aberfoyle, yeah. and then through that way, or I think you can go up and then over, like, the top of the loch, yeah. past, like, Colin and stuff, yeah. and back down the other side. Yeah. But... Apparently that road's awful. Really? Someone I know said they, they weren't driving, but they were hung over as fuck. And <laughs> it's windy, it's just basically right. like their summit's getting thrown around. No gratia. So yeah, so a lot, has, a lot has changed, but we'll see, we'll see where it goes. I think we're, we're planning some more yeah, more content on and some things around the area that you can do um, currently, and maybe we'll touch on some of these wee cool um, businesses as well that you can frequent if you want. But that's it from us today, I think, Matt, isn't it? Yeah, we've got places to be places to be things to do things to get nervous about and um, yeah we'll leave you from beautiful uh, gleaming Loch Lomond Inverugglas and uh, yeah have a wonderful day and catch up with you next time